separation. I still sense that, that that's kind of the category of what the Holy Spirit is saying. And when I tell people, I know sometimes God has to start things in a pastor. So there's a lot of things that's going on in a pastor that maybe isn't really going on in everybody. And and as a pastor is getting up and they feel an urgency and they feel a burden and they're talking about these things that sometimes people don't really fully understand. And I know that. But I sense something up big time. I feel such a burden in prayer. I feel like an urgency to pray. I feel an urgency to have you guys pray with me. Um, and tonight, I mean, I, was, uh, I wasn't planning any of that. I really didn't know. In passing, I heard the Holy Spirit say to this effect, I don't know why God asks things like this, but he does. He said, would it be okay to, to come in and take over? I, I heard that. And I say, yeah, Lord, I don't care. Just whatever you want to do. Because I just, when I tell you I don't care, I don't care. Whatever he wants to do. And I had no idea he was going to fall like that. And uh, that was awesome. But, you know, he, he'll move through leadership. If a pastor says, nope, I don't want it, he'll go somewhere else. I'm just telling you. So thank God that he came tonight in that way. But see what happened. The Holy Spirit moved in prayer. That there's something about intercession right now that's key. All right, so last week I dealt with a Hanukkah sermon, and it dealt with assimilation and being separate from the world, and really a call for us to be a holy people, to live righteously, to be different. And this week is going to be a lot different than that. I want to deal more of a very gentle sermon, more of like grace. But before I can get there, I've got to share a few things to lead up to that. All right, so... Let me just dive into this. How many of you guys feel that at some point in your life you have been burned? Somehow burned. Is everybody paying attention? Did I lose everybody at some point? Because, I mean, that should be pretty much 90% or plus, right? Or you feel like you've been burned in life somehow. You've been betrayed. You've, you've maybe, um, maybe you felt like you had um, not the best beginning in the early walk with Christ, that you had struggles. I know I did as well. And you just feel like you've been through a lot of burning, you know, in life. And Well, that's kind of what I'm going to deal with tonight, burnt stones. All right, so 1 Peter 2.5 says, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So God is using all of us as stones to come together and build a house for him to come dwell. Now, I know that each one of us individually is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and therefore the Holy Spirit lives in true Christians. I understand that. But what God is saying here in this passage is that we come together collectively to build a place for God to come dwell. And you have to understand, which I cannot get into this tonight because it takes take a while, but you have to understand the tabernacle, the priesthood, and the sacrifices of the Old Testament to understand the New Testament properly. But we now are building up a temple collectively, but also we as Christians are priests unto God. And let me tell you something, that is huge, because in the Old Testament time, it was only the Levites and the priests that could go in near, near the presence. Everybody else worshipped at a distance. And the fact that every single one of us can come in through the blood of Jesus, okay, can come into God's presence, uh, none of us really appreciate that the way we probably should. It is a great honor 
to be able to be in God's presence. And so, let me keep moving forward. Nehemiah 4.2, he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, now these, now listen, Nehemiah was called by God and he was a kind of a tough guy. He didn't put up with any funny business, okay? And God had called him as a warrior, really, to go build up the wall around Jerusalem. And I mean, Nehemiah, when you get a real burden from God, man, Nehemiah was riding his horse. And he's, he's, if you read Nehemiah, you can see that he was somebody that was a rugged warrior. He didn't put up with any funny business. But when God gives you a burden, he would ride his horse and see the walls broken down and he would weep. He has such a burden to see those walls rebuilt. It was an assignment. And Nehemiah, as he went out there and just was obeying God, doing what he's supposed to do, Satan had raised up some people that were there in Samaria. And it was Sanballat and Tobiah and these others. And they would sit back and they would just mock him. And they would ridicule him. And they would make fun of what they were doing. They were trying to discourage Nehemiah and the people. Now I'm going to tell you, any minister that's been in the ministry very long knows that there's some people out there that are like that. And if you listen to them, they can really discourage you from what God's called you. So these people, this is who they're referring to here. He, being these people, spoke in the presence of his brothers and wealthy men of Samaria, saying, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they uh, offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burnt ones? And they were just mocking them. What are these feeble Jews doing? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones? Even the burnt ones? And people that knew the, the temple of Solomon and they saw how glorious it was and how, I mean, that thing had to be an amazing sight. And people that were old enough that had seen that previous temple and then saw the rebuilt temple, the second temple, they actually wept because it was so inferior. And see, that second temple that was built with Ezra was built with burnt stones that had been torn down in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. And so you picture that it's like burnt stones, and it's something that is, is definitely not beautiful to look at. But the Bible made a promise. The prophets, like Zechariah and others that were prophesying in that second temple period, told them Zerubbabel and others said listen don't be discouraged because the Lord says the same hands that laid this foundation will see it finished and the Lord says don't be discouraged because the glory of the latter house will be greater than that of the former meaning not the splendor of the way it looked but the presence I would rather have an inferior exterior building and have an increase of the glory of God than the other way around So a lot of times in life, God will choose the people that have really been through destruction, that have had, they've suffered loss, and they've really been through some stuff. They're burnt stones. They've been damaged in life. They've been wounded, and they feel like that they don't fit in. They've been through a lot of betrayals. They've been through a lot of hurt. But yet at the same time, even though on the surface, they don't really look good. You know, the thing is that Satan... It seems to be such a deception that people, given the opportunity, will always pick a King Saul, but God will always pick a David. 
Saul was handsome, man. He was a head taller than everybody. He looked like a king. But people on the outside, it, it looks like they're burnt stones in life. It's those that maybe others have worried about and deemed unfit, and they don't think that they're ever going to amount to much of anything. And Satan has really worked on people, maybe made them feel that way. But many times it's those very people that God will pick the burnt stones, and he'll build up a dwelling place for his presence where he says, you know what, it may look uh, inferior on the outside, but I will deposit a much greater glory here. And I'm going to tell you, it's a unique thing because I remember seeing God move so powerfully at Brownsville in Pensacola. And it was a beautiful facility they had, but it was right in the middle of what would be considered the ghetto. It was bad. I know many of you haven't been, but I mean, they, it was pretty common that, you know, the pastor, church leaders had to go tell prostitutes, you need to go turn your tricks somewhere else. Don't do it right here. In the, I mean, that's where they were. And it was in such a bad location that the pastor that took, was about to take the, the pastorate before Kilpatrick came, he said, the first thing I'm going to do is move it out of here somewhere else. And that's how bad it was. But when Kilpatrick came, he felt to leave it there. And it's interesting because it was in that place that God deposited such a mighty move of God. Are you hear what I'm saying? Who would have thought that? In Azusa Street, Bonnie Bray Street, this little house where you had William Seymour was so desperate for God to come. And he had, he had about 12 African American people that were praying in that house. They were desperate for a move of God. The Holy Spirit fell in that house, man. And it ended up that they, they had to get a bigger facility, so they rented this uh, Susan Street Mission, but it had been a stable at one time. You should Google and look at the Azusa Street Mission. This was not a beautiful facility. The, the, the seats were like those old wooden crates with two-befores nailed to them. It was basically a barn at one time where animals, they had to go in there and scoop out the animal feces and clean it up and all that, but it was certainly nothing to look at. But it was interesting that even though this was an inferior thing to look at on the outside, God deposited such a glory there that every move of God, I hope people really understand this, every move of God, um, spirit-filled, every revival, everything that's gone on all over the world can trace its roots back to the Azusa Street Revival where God initially sent another Pentecost and gave back the baptism of the Holy Spirit to the church and launched missionaries all over the world, literally all over the world, and spread the fires of revival. Such an awesome move of God in such a place that nobody would have thought it would take place. Do I still have everybody? Is this, hopefully this will be encouraging. Because if you feel like I'm the least likely person, you know, the thing is, a lot of people have felt that way, that have been used by God. There was a time that Smith Wigglesworth was so shy, he could not get up in front of people. You should read his story. The guy was an introvert, and he couldn't even really read. He was, he was working as a plumber for a time. His wife though was more outspoken, and God had really done a work in her life, and they, she had gotten involved in... Um, William Booth's ministry and the Salvation Army, which was quite powerful in its day. And, you know, she was helping to do witnessing and, and preaching and ministry. But he was such an introvert. And he felt like, you know, I really want God to do a work in my life. And so he sought it out. He went to a man and he said, I want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I want God to do a work in my life. 
And that man took him by one of those old wooden stoves and prayed for him. And you know what? Smith Wigglesworth was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And there was a boldness that came. There was a prayer language in tongues. He was clothed with fire. He came out of that thing totally transformed. And when he went back, he ended up getting an opportunity to speak with that Salvation Army. He got up and began to speak. And when he did, the power of God was electric. He was as bold as a lion. And his wife sat out there and was astounded. She said, that is, she meant this literally, that is not the same man. He is a different man. And so Smith would have been somebody, if you'd asked him at one time, he would have been like, no, God will use anybody but me, you know. A lot of people feel that way. But unfortunately, a lot of people get dead religion. There was a man, a Roman ruler by the name of Pompey, many people have heard of him, in 63 B.C., This was the time, you remember that the Greeks were coming in to conquer Jerusalem area under, you know, the Hanukkah story. Well, later on, the Romans started coming to power and the Romans were conquering Jerusalem. And this was Pompey. He took Jerusalem. And when he did, he was saying, I want to go see the God of the Hebrews. So this Roman ruler comes in, he finally, you know, conquered Israel, Jerusalem area, and he's over there by the Temple Mount. He says, I want to see the God of the Hebrews. I've heard about the stories. You know, I've heard about the Red Sea and all these. I've got to see the God of the Hebrews. And he started going in, and the people that were working around the Levites and the priests were really like, man, you can't go in there. You're not even supposed to be here. You're definitely not supposed to go in there. And they were trying to stop him. He said, no, I've got to see the God of the Hebrews. And he kept pushing them out of the way and going through. They couldn't stop him. He goes through the holy place, and he's seeing the menorah, he's seeing the table of showbread, and he goes up to the Holy of Holies area, and he pulls back the veil, and he's so excited to see in the Holy of Holies. And there was actually nothing in there, because the Ark of the Covenant during the days of Nebuchadnezzar was never found. But he didn't see anything. And he left there so disappointed that he was looking for something of the God of the Hebrews and really didn't find anything. And I wonder how many people that are out there sincerely come to churches and they're looking for the God of the Bible. Where's the God who laid hands on the sick and we read about in the Bible and the sick were healed? Where's the God that saw demons lead people? Where's the God we read about that did all these miracles and His presence and His power and, and the stories I heard whenever I was growing up and my parents made me go to vacation Bible school and stuff. Where's that God? And they go to church and they're looking for the God of the Bible. And it's like an empty shell. And they leave out of their thinking, what's going on? So when God takes his burnt stones and he's, he's wanting to build a dwelling place, you have to understand, he's not interested in building something that's dead religion, that's just ritual. The Lord wants to build a place for him to come dwell. And so God's great redemption, he uses the weak to confound the wise. Let me read the scripture, 1 Corinthians one twenty seven. God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Isn't that encouraging to all of us in this room right now, right? But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame things which are strong. Why does He do it? Because He gets all the glory. 
It's like taking a little shepherd boy out of a field. A lot of people don't really think this through. They just read about David killing Goliath. But they really ought to stop and think about the fact that David's dad didn't even think enough of him to invite him in. And Samuel's saying, I've come here today. You know, when Samuel, I'm sure when Samuel came, because Samuel, whatever God was doing, God was doing through Samuel. And everybody was just a little bit scared of Samuel. Because if you got on Samuel's bad side, you know what I'm saying? And so they, when he come to town, everybody was kind of like, and this is in the Bible to everybody's like, is everything okay? You know, and Samuel came to this um, David's family's house. And, I mean, it really would have been something of great honor to have him there. And Sam, Samuel's telling him, say, listen, I'm, I'm here to anoint the king. And so David's dad saying, well, surely my oldest son, okay. Well, as things progressed... And Samuel saying, no, it's not him. Is there anybody else? I mean, it took them a long time to really even think in their mind, well, you know, David's out there, but surely not him, you know. He, I can't imagine you'd pick him. Look at all these guys, right? And Samuel says, no, we're not going to even sit down until he gets here. So they went and got him, and he was the one. I really believe that God operates that way because you look at the religious system of denominations. I'm not being critical. I'm saying this in love. But uh, most denominations, and I mean all of them across the board, there's a lot of vying for position. There's a lot of politics. There's a lot of who's got the biggest church or the most money, etc. And you can just see the same thing. Well, if God's going to come, he's surely going to come over here with this guy. But many times God will pick the most unlikely people in the most unlikely circumstances to show up in the greatest power. Those that everybody else deemed unfit, all the the others thought, well, man, if God's going to move, he'll move here, 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 and here. I don't think he'd ever move over there. But that may be the very place that God has marked to come. We've got to be careful with dead religion. I'm just going to read over this because I've taught on it before. I don't want to go into this too much. But the First Timothy 4.1, the Spirit says that in the latter time, some will fall away from the faith. This is a concerning scripture. It's a warning. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, it's interesting to me that deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, if you read this in context, the warning is religion. You know what religion is? It's just a shell. It's just like a husk. It's dead and it's dry. It's ritual. It's form. But there's no life in it. There's no relationship. It's a form of godliness. But denies the power. Denies the relationship. And so in context when you read this. You read verse 2. It says by means of hypocrisy. And that word's always used in the Bible. In the New Testament. In Jesus' ministry. Coming against the Pharisees. In the religious community. By means of the hypocrisy of liars. Seared in their own conscience. As with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage. And you can't help but think about. um, The Vatican. And that sort of thing. And advocate abstaining from foods. You can't help but think about the kosher diet. And the. The hardcore Judaism, which God has commanded to be, uh, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth, 
For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. So the prophetic warning there is to be careful about dead religion. The Bible says, if you read, I believe, 2 Timothy 3, but if you read it, it says in the latter days there'll be all these different you know, lovers of pleasure, and, and it goes through this huge list. And at the end, it says those that have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. And listen to what he says, from such turn away. He's saying to avoid those types. God's not interested in dead religion. He wants a relationship. And it's just kind of common sense if you read the Bible. When Adam and Eve, when he created them, he created them to have a relationship. I mean, he came down and walked with them in the cool of the day. That's why you want a family. When sin entered the world, it brought a, a separation. And from that time, God has been working um, diligently to, through the ages to call Abraham out and then to bring the nation of Israel out of Egypt and create this tabernacle. Why? He said, have them build me a tabernacle that I might dwell among them. I want to be with my family. And then he sends Jesus, God in the flesh, to walk among us. And why? So that sin would be separated so that the Holy Spirit could come live in us and so that we can have a relationship. And then, in the end, when, God, when Jesus comes back, he's going to rule and reign. But what's the very, very end? That the new Jerusalem will come down and the dwelling of God will be with man and man with God forever. So you read this and you think God is very interested in tabernacling among us. He wants a family. He wants a relationship. And some of the greatest hindrance to relationship is religion. I'll have to get in that in a future sermon because if I sidetrack on that, it, that'll be all that I do because religion is a deep subject, sincerely. But religion is dangerous. It's a form of godliness, but there's no relationship. There's no power. There's no presence of God. All right. So leaving Babylon's dead religion and building a dwelling place for God. You know, that was what Israel had to do. They, they were in Babylonian captivity after Nebuchadnezzar came. And he pulled the temple, you know, pulled down the stones and burnt the stones. He, he destroyed. He took all the holy vessels. Uh, we know the story. And here they are in Babylon for all these years. And there came a point in time whenever Cyrus came to power. And he said, you know, God had moved on the heart of Cyrus to let them go back. But the reason they were going back was to rebuild the temple and then to rebuild the walls. But there had to be a group of people that were willing to leave the comfort of where they had been all these years. Because how many knows when you stay somewhere for a while, you get comfortable? All right, they had to be willing to leave Babylon and go back, realizing that they were going to have to build something. They were going to have to build the house of God. They were going to have to build the walls. They were going to have to build their own uh, home. It was going to be a lot of work. And they were leaving something where they were probably comfortable. But it's symbolic because all of us have got to be willing to leave the familiar and leave dead religion and what we've known in the past to press into the deeper things of God. There's got to be a hunger in people for more. And God's incredible love and patience with all of us along our journey. The Bible says in John 15, 2, He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit He prunes to make more fruitful. So the Lord... Is so patient with us. 
Now, here's why I want to say something and sidetrack and come back to grace here in a moment, but I have to say this at the beginning. The thing is that God is looking for sincere hearts. And I've seen as I pastored and been in the ministry for years, I've seen that there's a lot of people in churches and there's a lot of hand-raising, a lot of dancing, a lot of excitement, a lot of things. But only God knows the heart. And some people have really, truly given God their heart and they're very sincere. And other people have only done that partially. And they'll say, Lord, I'll give you this, this, and this, but not that. And what God's looking for is sincerity. He wants a sincere heart. You know, because I love my wife, there's, I wouldn't say something I knew would really hurt her deeply because I love her. Now, there are certain things I would never do because it would hurt her. And people that, that really love the Lord with all their heart, they know deep down, y'all hearing me? They know deep down, I shouldn't be hanging around these people. I shouldn't be dating this person. I really shouldn't be watching this. I shouldn't be drinking this. And these words shouldn't be coming out of my mouth. And I know it grieves him, but I found that those that have a sincere heart, God will convict them and they'll repent and leave it behind because they love him. But those that don't have a sincere heart will say, well, I love you, Lord, but I'm still going to keep this too. And usually over time, that will be their downfall. I've seen people that, especially with the younger generation now being in the ministry for years, that man, they were on fire for God and they really loved God, it seemed like. But they, they would not give up certain things, certain friends, certain relationships or whatever. And they ended up falling away from the Lord and it was hardcore. To this day, I can think of people in my mind see their face that are far from God now. They're far from God. They're deep in sin. And they were once really close to the Lord. But they would not give up everything. Jesus said, if, you, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. That means you've got to become crucified with Christ, dead. But those that have a real sincere heart with the Lord, they're okay with that. They're saying, Lord, I lay my life on the altar. Let your holy fire come and burn out of me whatever needs to go. Take out of my life whatever you need to take out of. I don't want any more anything that displeases you. I just want you. That's a sincere heart. And God will honor that prayer. And he'll come in and clean house. I can just see Jesus seeing that and it pleases him so much. He says, okay, well, you know, there's all these little things that are right in between me and you. It's causing relationship problems. I'm going to reach in here and begin to pull this person out. I'm going to pull this thing out of your life. And, this, and if you really yield to that process, your heart gets purified. And you find that you don't want the things you used to want. How many realize that when you were a little kid, you know, you loved that candy, but you, you probably hated broccoli or something, right? But it's interesting that when you get older, you know, you like some of the things you hated when you was a kid. It was like torture, man. Your parents made you. You're, you're not going to leave this table. So you eat those Brussels sprouts. I don't care. You're going to eat them right now. You know, and you, it was just torture. Oh. And then when you get older, you're like, hey, let's go get us some Brussels sprouts. That sounds good, right? Why? Because you, you, your taste buds change. The thing is, when you, when you begin to grow up in Jesus, your, your desires change. You're, you're all of a sudden, the things that you used to just have to have, and it was, a, you know, you, it was things you didn't need in your life, 
and the Lord began to prune you and clean this stuff out, you change. So with that said, God is going to visit the burnt stones, the people that nobody would have thought that he would ever use that person. Nobody would ever thought he would use that ministry. But those are the very places he's going to put a greater glory. But he needs us to have sincere hearts and yield to him. So along the journey, this is just going to be about the religious thing, and now I've got to move off, but along the journey, see, the religious spirit tries to beat people up because they're not perfect. A religious spirit is horrible. It is a horrible demonic experience, a horrible bondage. And it really oppresses people to make them feel that they'll never amount to anything. A religious spirit, let me give you an example. The Bible says that if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The Bible says there's no condemnation for them in Christ. The Bible says God will forgive you and he'll throw your sins into the sea of forgetfulness. Guess what? God, If you're sincere, God will forgive you and it won't come back up with him. So who is it that keeps bringing up your past and rubbing it in your face? It's the devil and it's a religious demon to be more specific. And who are the people that do things like that? It's not those that are moving with the Holy Spirit. But it's those that are being used of a demonic entity, a religious spirit, to bring up people's past and rub it in their face and make them feel like they'll never amount to anything. And try to make them feel like they're unworthy because they have mistakes in their past. That's not God. And as a matter of fact, some of the greatest champions in the Bible, like Peter, for example... Man, what would have happened if Jesus had told Peter around the fire, guess what, Peter? You're just disqualified. You're never going to mount anything. So why don't you just go back to fishing? But Jesus wasn't like that, was he? Jesus reinstated him. He said, you're going to do great things for me. Forget about the past. I forgive you. Let's go. That's Jesus right there. I love this song Jason Upton wrote called Freedom Song. I don't know if some of you have heard this or not, but you all look it up. But I like this. This is uh, some of the lyrics. It says, Well, we live in a country supposedly favorless, but all over town and churches abide powerful weaklings who practice their politics. Stealing from Jesus his beautiful bride. Whether you're a Pharisee, Sadducee, or heresy, you better get out of God's way. But I love that because that's so true. Powerful weaklings. It's an interesting play on words. You see some people that you know, men of renown. Why? Because they have a lot of money. <laughs> They're on the board in church for that reason. Men of power and renown. Yet, spiritually speaking, they're weak. And they have no real walk with God, no anointing. Hello? All right, so let me kind of close out with a couple of things here. When you're called to carry the glory of the Lord, If you're called to carry an anointing and called to carry the glory, man, Satan will attack. And the way Satan attacks is he tries to bring a lot of controversy and confusion, a lot of smearing. It's something else. And I mean, it's like your name being smeared, people saying stuff about you, and you're thinking, that never happened. I mean, what, is, what are you even talking about, you know? I've heard some, some crazy stuff, man. I knew that those people, that something 
put that in their mind, and I knew it was demonic. I'm like, you need to quit thinking thoughts like that, man. Something's messing with your head. But they just come under the influence of those spirits, and they begin to really come up against. You remember Sambalat and Tobiah? Here's Nehemiah just trying to build the wall. Here's Ezra just trying to rebuild the temple with burnt stones. And they're over there, what, mocking and ridiculing and opposing and doing everything they can to discourage them along the process. It's demonic. Something that stirred those men up to oppose the work of the Lord. But here's the promises in the latter days. Just as the Bible said, Haggai 2.9, this is one of the prophets during the second temple period. I mean, you imagine that Ezra is laying the foundation. He's rebuilding the temple. And you know as well as I do that the older people that knew the previous temple were probably thinking, guys, our best effort, this temple's still going to look ugly compared to what it used to. I mean, not to mention the fact that we're not these skilled carpenters that Solomon was able to hire, but we don't have the materials and the stones are burnt. So when we even get this thing up, it's going to look all stained and burnt. It's going to be inferior. But Haggai comes along and says the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former and in this place i will give peace i'm gonna tell you symbolically speaking the lord is saying to the last day church if you'll believe me the glory of this last day church can be even greater than the glory of the early church y'all seeing the metaphor here in joel 2 23 so rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. And he's poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. And it will come about after this, I will appoint my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men dream dreams, your young men see visions. So this is the former and latter rain, the early and latter rains. You have to understand it has to do with harvest cycles. In the nation of Israel, whenever it was time for Passover... They had planted the barley. And they'd also, right after that, the wheat was planted. But they depended on God to send the early rains. And if it didn't rain, they weren't going to reap a harvest. And then the long summer is there. And then you get into the time of the latter rain. When now it's the fall time and the grape harvest and the figs and all that was in that, the oil, the, um, you know, they were bringing in the, the olives and... And they needed God to send the latter rain so that harvest would come in. And just as God sent the early rains beginning on the day of Pentecost in the early church and there was a long interval, the dark ages, God's going to send us the latter rain to help bring in the harvest. You know what I'm saying? In Zechariah 10.1 Ask rain from the Lord at a time of the spring rain. The Lord who makes the storm clouds, he will give them showers of rain, vegetation in a field to each man. So ask the Lord for rain in the time of rain. We're in this latter rain time. God knows it's going to take an outpouring of his spirit to see things happen. That's why he said in the latter days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. God knows that the Bible says some plant some water, but God brings the increase. He knows that he's the Lord of the harvest. He knows the increase must come from him. And he knows that here we are faithfully planting and working the fields, but it's not going to do a bit of good unless he sends the rain. 
James 5, 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. This is a time when God is wanting to pour out the rains of heaven like never before. I'm telling you. Listen, River of Life, don't, don't let your minds wander right now. Let God speak to you. This is a time of visitation. And God is saying, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is a time when God is saying, I'm going to get a bride ready for my coming without spot or blemish. Don't be discouraged. Ask me for rain in times of rain. I will send the rain, and then you'll see the harvest come in. But there's a biblical principle. Those that sow in tears reap with joy. There has to be the intercession and the groaning and the travailing of the intercessors that will give birth in intercession to a harvest. And then you go out reaping in the sheaves with joy and with laughter and rejoicing. In John 2.10, Jesus' first miracle, whenever he turned the water to wine in Canaan, he said that every man serves the good wine first normally. Then when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine later. But you've kept the best till now. And there's a principle here I'm trying to show you. That the Lord saves the best wine for last. That the glory of the latter house can be even greater than the former. That the Lord is wanting to send great rain. What I'm trying to say is this. That God is wanting to do a phenomenal outpouring of His Spirit in these latter days. Why? To get a people ready for His coming. To see a harvest come in that could not come in any other way. And God many times will use the burnt stones. See, the burnt stones may not look good on the outside, but they've been through the fire and they've been tested. And just like the menorah here that was in the tabernacle, it was an oil lamp with seven lamps. And the Bible says that in Revelation 4, 5, it mentions the seven spirits of God, but you have to understand there's not seven Holy Spirits. It's a metaphor. Just like there's one lampstand, but it has seven branches. When the Holy Spirit comes, He's a person. When He comes in great power, He's coming in the sevenfold manifestation. Okay, He's coming as the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of revelation, the Spirit of power counsel and might knowledge the fear of the Lord he's coming in his fullness and when he comes in his fullness he's coming as the spirit of Elijah and this is what I feel like God has been doing now for a little while in river of life God has been moving for years with the, what I would call the spirit of Elijah what is the spirit of Elijah what is that anointing what is that fire what is it that John the Baptist had on him when Malachi said before the great and the dreadful day of the Lord, two different appearings, he said, I will send Elijah. The great day was the Lord's first coming. The, the dreadful will be a second. But why was the spirit of Elijah to proceed? Because when the spirit of Elijah comes, the spirit of Elijah is the Holy Spirit coming in his fullness as the spirit of the Lord, wisdom, revelation, counsel, might knowledge, fear of the Lord. He comes in that fullness. But notice what you see connected with that. When John the Baptist came, he came and he was preaching a message of repentance. 
When the spirit of Elijah was on John, he was preaching repentance. He was calling people to a righteous life. He was, he was preaching and ministering in a way and immersing people to see people get their lives clean and right. Why? To be ready when Jesus came to receive his ministry. When the spirit of Elijah comes, he comes to prepare a house for a visitation. And God has been preparing River of Life for some time. And He's been working on us and deeply consecrating our lives so that when the Lord comes, we'll be ready. Talking about, when I say the Lord coming, I'm talking about in revival. I'm not talking about necessarily in His second coming, even though definitely the Holy Spirit is getting us ready for that. But the Lord will come as the Spirit of Elijah to purge out, to clean house, to, to deal with the Jezebels and get them out, to expose sin, to get things ready so that the high places are brought down. The low places are brought up. The crooked places made straight. The way of the Lord has been prepared. So when he comes in, people are ready for that visitation, that revival. Does this make sense? And so God is preparing things and he's wanting to come in a great move of God with River of Life. And I remember hearing at Brownsville, I remember I saw this big long documentary. I've seen so much from that. But they would say... The people that would say, you know, Kilpatrick got up, man, he was preaching. He was just, you could tell he was just so desperate and he was talking about revival and he was so hungry. Said, we just didn't understand. He said, I, I mean, this one lady was saying, I, I remember thinking to myself, well, if you want revival, just, you know, call an anointed preacher and come in, put up a sign. I mean, just have a revival. It's not hard. I mean, why is this? And people didn't understand. People could not understand what was going on inside that God was doing. The deep longing for more. The, call, the knowing that something was up. But when the Spirit of God fell, I remember that man that worked the video department, I can't remember his name, but he said that, he said, here we were, and we had a good church and everything, but he said, it's like you didn't realize how hungry you were until revival came he said it's kind of like when you're driving down the road and you haven't eaten and you, you're just not thinking about it because you're busy but maybe you smell somebody cooking their, on their barbecue and all of a sudden you start feeling really hungry he said when the holy spirit came in father's day 95 there he said man he said we realized just how hungry and desperate we really were and we didn't even know there's a deep longing in us for more and there's a prophecy that goes along with this sermon so I'm about to read this and close with it. I'm going to tell you though, hopefully this encouraged you tonight because even though many people feel I'm unworthy, you know, if you look at my credentials in the past, I'm the last person God would pick. And you think about yourself, you know, look, I, I don't feel like God could ever use me. Those are usually the people that God will use. The locations you think, well, I mean, these burnt stones, this inferior place, this inferior ministry, this, I mean, really? I mean, do you really think God's going to move? That'll be the very place that God sends a great glory. Because God is looking for a heart of David, and he's looking for sincerity in people. If people will really have a genuine heart before the Lord... God can do great things through that. But it's about a heart issue. Are our hearts really sincere about Him? Him getting the glory. As many times people want God to do something in their ministry, 
But if you really get down to the motive of why they want God to do something in their ministry, it's about them. It's about their name being exalted. It's about their kingdom being built. It's about their financial status increasing. It's about their reputation. It's about them. When you really get down to it a lot of times. But if you find somebody that sincerely just wants God to move because they really want the Lord to get all the glory and the Lord to um, move and see His kingdom go forth, that's what God's looking for in somebody's heart. So here's this prophecy that John Kilpatrick gave recently. My spirit is now breaking out where I find faith and expectancy. I have a people that have not bowed their knee to Baal. I know who my people are and I know where my people are and I've heard and seen the desperation. I'm overseeing my work in the nations of the earth. Many have already concluded that my spirit cannot accomplish what I have directed him to accomplish, but they will stand in absolute disbelief at how sudden and how mighty my presence will overwhelm the obstacles that they have carefully set up to obstruct the move of my spirit. This will be a time like no other because of the lateness of the hour. It will be swift. It will be uncontainable. I will take, now here's the part, I will take the most unlikely no-names and make them pillars. Those that others have worried about, criticized, and deemed unfit, I'm turning to. I will endow them with supernatural wisdom and give them vision, and they, people will be amazed at the abilities I'm going to put in them. Healing will be uncontainable. But see, he felt that God would use the unlikely. Those are the burnt stones, the people that others look at and say, well, God will never use them. You have to be careful with that, because a lot of times those will be the very people that God will use. I want us to go ahead and shut down recordings, Brother Zach.